Welcome back to Composer Quest. I'm your host, Charlie McCarran, a composer in Minneapolis, and this show is my attempt to share ideas and advice you can use in your own composing. This is the 54th episode, and you can stream or download all the episodes for free at ComposerQuest.com or on iTunes or Stitcher. This episode, I get to talk with someone who's listened to, thought about, and written about a ton of sound art. Mark Wiedenbaum runs the site Disquiet.com, and in addition to reviewing this sound art, he also commissions it. Each week, he puts forward a challenge to his community of sound artists and composers in the group Disquiet Junto. Some of these challenges, which we'll get to in this episode, are to produce a track based on an ice cube, or an Instagram photo, or the sound of space plasma hitting the Voyager 1. Mark and I talk about some of the most influential sound art pieces, and he also explains his controversial thought that sound design will take over all of film music in the next few decades. Throughout the episode, I use a bunch of tracks from Disquiet Junto contributors, and I have links to all these tracks at ComposerQuest.com Disquiet, along with the timecode they appear at in this episode. I really enjoyed my talk with Mark Weedbaum, and I hope you do too. Thanks so much for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Maybe you could explain your blog, Disquiet, and where that whole idea came from. Certainly. In 1996, I founded it just as a way to store online versions of articles, because back then the idea was once a magazine went out of print, there was no such thing as Google Books where you could easily find it. So the article I was most proud of, I started posting. But then it occurred to me, I guess I could write something and post it without ever publishing it anywhere else. And then and then it began as, as it is today, which is just a, virtually a daily publication. Cool. So you were one of the pioneer bloggers. Um, pioneer is one term. Another is just like someone just doing something because they're just doing it. <laughs> so you're clearly a very active listener. How do you write down on paper something that makes people have the same experience of you listening to these albums? For me, a key thing when you're writing about music is to help people understand how to listen to it. And so description is really helpful, but I think more than just description, which could suggest sort of what it sounds like, I try to figure out how it works, how it functions, and what to listen for. And so once you have a sense of maybe how it works, you give the listener something to pay attention to. Being that you have listened to a lot of artists and written about them, do you have any advice to people who are writing music? I'd read for a long time this idea that you're a writer if you have to write every day. And I, I didn't really know what that meant. It was, it was this phrase that I was familiar with. It's a, it's a fairly common one. You know, Someone who's a writer has to write every day. Someone who's a painter has to paint every day. And then one day, I had just finally recognized that if in a given day I manage to both exercise and write, I'm in a really good mood. And if in a given day I either exercise or write, I'm in a pretty good mood. But on the occasional day when I neither exercise nor write, you really, really probably don't want to be around me. And I'm definitely not an athlete by any stretch. And so um, 
I realized that point, that's what they meant. It's not so much that you need to write every day. It's, it's actually that if you don't write, you kind of feel sick. The music I respond to is often by people who have that kind of impulse for making music, um, that, that they kind of have to keep doing it. Do you think it's an innate skill that people have to make music, or is it something that you learn to want to do? Um, that one, I, I don't know. I, I think, again, there's different ways of making music. I mean, I guess a response to that would be, do you consider a pianist a composer? I mean, just because you're not writing the music, you're just performing it. I still think that performing is a form of composition, processing it and making, preferably, making something new of it. Or if you're not making something new of it, maybe you're doing something really interesting by you know, imitating your predecessors. But, but I do think that if someone really feels the need to learn to be enthusiastic about it, it's probably, there's probably reasons they want to do it that are not really going to end up leading to great work. Yeah, yeah. Maybe we could talk about your ongoing challenge that you put out to your blog readers, the Disquiet Junto. Yeah, correct. Where did that idea come from? Well, just to begin with, the Disquiet Junto, just for anyone who's just listening in, is this weekly project I started the first Thursday of last year of 2012. What I did was I post a project idea and just said, if anyone wants to create a piece of music that adheres to this instruction, that'd be great. Upload it here to the SoundCloud where the community is is housed. And then people will give it a listen and comment on it. And lo and behold, I can't remember if we had as many as 60, but we definitely had over 40 entries that first time, which gave me the energy to keep doing it. We've done it every week since. And right now there's almost 2,600 tracks online by almost 400 individuals. That's really cool. What are some of the challenges you've put forward in Disquiet Junto? Like some of your favorites, maybe? Um, well, we've done 90, and uh, I would pull up the website, but, um, but I'm afraid that doing so might crash my Skype. So I'll, <laughs> from, from, from memory, well, the very first one was record the sound of ice in a glass and make something from it. It was that simple. Since then, they've gotten often quite complex, but even in their complexity, they've been highly restrictive because the idea is that you get people to do stuff by freeing them, and you free them by actually constraining them, And because in the process of constraining them, they don't have to make too many decisions, and they can actually proceed. We did um, a really amazing project where we worked with a documentary filmmaker who was working on a documentary about what it sounds like it doesn't exist, but it's for real. It's been around for a long time. Blind competitive sailing, in which blind sailors using vocal cues from people who are on the boat who, who can see, uh, compete in sailing contests. And there's a documentary filmmaker who is making a movie about this. She had a trailer, which is fairly common in documentary filmmaking. You actually make a trailer when the film is being made as a way to kind of get energy going forward, maybe get some funding. And we posted that trailer with no music, just with the environmental sound and whatever dialogue took place. We posted that and then I think about 20, 25 people recorded scores for the trailer, and then she selected the favorite one, the director, and then that, that music became the music for the trailer, which I thought was just an amazing, amazing experience. It's not just going for sailboat rides. For more than 20 years now, we've been hosting the Blind National Sailing Championship. I've had, I've had, I've had. And then at the end of 2011, I did a 
what was by far the most listened to one at this point it's probably had 70,000 listens maybe more for, you know all tracks combined what we did was I had a bunch of composers who used Instagram the photo sharing tool each give me a different photo that they taken and then I distributed them among them so no one got back their own photo and said this image is the cover of your next single now re- record your single and um, we got 25 tracks of ambient music as a result and that was just hugely popular energy between all these different musicians knowing that each other would be listening that they were performing for each other and recording for each other and and that there was a kind of sense of community among them let's see what else are favorites um we did one called a vine suite where you had to record three vine videos of everyday sounds and then you would simply clip those three six second bits into one 18 second mini suite The one about creating a piece of music for the Voyager. Oh, yes, yes. That's a cool idea, too. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. What we did with that one was that someone had forwarded to me a link to this amazing audio of this sound that Voyager had picked up. What it was was, I guess, the um, plasma that was in, in space, despite it being vacuum, there still is activity. And there was plasma that was hitting the craft and the sound that was recorded as a result of that activity. And I'm not a scientist, so that is horrible mangling of scientific fact. But in any case, there was sound, and it was, to begin with, incredibly cool because just the fact that we were able to hear this was mind-blowing. But on top of it, it had this very clear melody-ish quality to it. And um, just the idea of this sad little craft just leaving us forever and we could write a little goodbye music for it was good. I'm ancient enough that, you know, the music from Close Encounter of of the Third Kind was really formative for me. The idea of music as communication with extraterrestrial species was really an early part of my childhood. And also that early Star Trek movie in which I think it's okay now to to allow for a spoiler, but that early Star Trek movie where it turned out that this alien intelligence was in fact related to a Voyager spacecraft that had in fact launched from Earth. So all those things combined to make it sound really fun. Do you remember some of the results you got from that Voyager Oh yeah, challenge? I mean I listened to every track and I remember, I frequently remember them. I think that, um, and they were all, they were all so different. Some of the most out there makers in the group really embraced the melody and extended and expanded it and complemented it with other sounds. My favorite tracks reminded me a bit of uh, the work that the composer Messian did related to birdsong, 
like finding these sounds from arguably the natural environment, recognizing them in this melodic material, and then proceeding to develop complementary sounds that gave them, that framed them, and that sort of privileged them and recognized their musical quality. So the, the pieces that did that I liked the most, the ones that, that really sort of saw the Voyager as kind of like a collaborator, as a duet partner. question I wanted to ask you is what is your definition of music versus sound art or maybe they overlap for you yeah um there's an individual I once saw give a talk I think it was Christopher Cox who said this in a way that was I think intended to be a bit provocative but I, I don't think he was wrong he said that music is a subset of sound art and, and I kind of like that I kind of like the idea that that music music we frequently see is this large expansive thing because it's so popular but sound art is this sort of rarefied small thing, so maybe at best it's in the shadow of music. But one way of thinking about it is that most music adheres to a very specific type of potential end result. And so it's actually a subset of sound art in a weird way. Yeah, music is actually more restrictive in frequencies that you use and rhythms. So what do you think are some of the coolest or most maybe world-changing examples of sound art it's really weird you should ask me that because i'm actually working on a list of 10 important works of sound art right now for a project hey <laughs> so i can do a test run right now in fact actually i probably have it on my computer somewhere so i i, I think for example um 40 part motet by janet cardiff is just freaking amazing i will never forget or i hope never to forget the first time i ever experienced it walking into the museum of modern art and there were 40 speakers playing this piece of music by thomas tallis that was already a favorite of mine and being able to walk amid the choir by moving from speaker to speaker. My first experience, it reminded me of nothing so much as being one of the angels in Wings of Desire and standing near people and listening in on their mm. conversations. But it also reminded me a lot of the matrix and the, the bullet time and the way that you, know, you could sort of stop time and move around it. Another key one to me that is a work of sound art isn't technically sound art in the sense that we really think of it. There's a composer named Ellen Fullman who does an instrument that consists of these incredibly long strings that span the length of a room, and she has them in two sets, and she walks between them with her hands extended and plays them as she goes. And the score, so to speak, is written on the floor in the form of pieces of tape and so forth that tell her sort of where to stop and what to do. And that's a really interesting piece because it's beautiful just to look at, even before she ever plays it. And I think it, it works both as sound art and that's it's an installation. It's often installed in a gallery space, but it can also be, it is also, of course, primarily intended to be performed. There's a really talented um, sound artist named John Cannonberg. He does a lot of sound art relating to museums that explores this idea. He has some really great recordings of the sounds of museums. Sometimes he compiles them into field recording medleys of the, the, the greatest hits of that day's moments, or sometimes they are just raw recordings of sound.
This is, um, I don't want to speak for them, and there's so much there's so much in it. But my impression of it is that you know we think of museums, and in our experience, museums are quiet places because there's so much reflection going on. But even in a place where people have sort of trained each other not to talk too much, there's a lot of sound, docents and shuffling, and little kids and things being moved, and the beeps of elevators, and people's cell phones, and whispered conversations, and it's there's just so much sound, and um, and he he captures that in a really interesting way. Yeah, my girlfriend and I have talked about doing sound walks, just recording walks. We both have done one in New York when we were visiting there. And it's really interesting how you, when you know you're recording, then you start to actually listen to what's going on around you. And I had no idea that there were like five different languages being spoken, just walking through Times Square. Yeah, I teach this class I mentioned about sound here at this art school, and um, one of the things that the class does is it helps the students in it train their ears so they're better listeners, stronger listeners. And um, one of the exercises they do, in fact, the exercise they're doing this weekend is that um, I, I, I tell them to take public transportation, preferably a bus, to record half an hour of sound, to get off the bus at the end of that half hour and write down everything they remember hearing, and then to listen through the tape and to then be amazed by all the things that they weren't aware were going on. And then divide between their recollection of the trip, their experience of it, and their recollection of it, versus the microphone's recollection of it. Is mi- it can be really mind-blowing, the amount of stuff. You'll find out that someone is talking about you, and you don't know it until you revisit the tape. Huh. That's a great assignment. We actually did an assignment in the Hunto that was related to that one. This is one of my favorites. I haven't listened to them in a while, but I'm going to revisit them tonight now that I've thought about it. People recorded. You sat outside. You recorded sound. And you had a pad with you, and you had a clock, and you kept track at any instant when something happened that you paid attention to. A bird sang, you wrote down, you know, 25 seconds, bird song. Yeah, I don't know, car horn, one minute. You write down one minute, car horn. And you don't listen back to that recording. What you do then is you go write a piece of music that's intended to emphasize those moments, and you build those time codes into your piece, and then you play them back together. And the final piece is a piece that you and the audience hear together for the first time.
Are there any thoughts you have on film composing? Film music is super important to me because I think film music is this beautiful place between music and sound and that its role in film is really bizarre. I mean, in some ways, I wouldn't be surprised if by the time my daughter, who's now three, is my age, there's no longer any music in film. I wouldn't be surprised if by the time she's my age, the idea of having a score to film in terms of like recognizable melody has absolutely gone away the way that laugh tracks on TV have gone away. I'm not saying they're the same, but I'm saying that there's something very peculiar about it when you really just take a step back and watch a movie and think, wow, there's a bunch of violins playing while this guy's running down a street. Like in a way, it's absolutely bizarre. I'm really excited to watch what has come to be often thought of as underscoring come into the fore, so to speak, because it actually doesn't come into the fore because it remains in the background. But composers like Clint Mansell, Lisa Gerard, um, Cliff Martinez is probably the most phenomenal example of this. The purpose of those scores is to be ever more just part of the sound design of the film. Um, yes, yeah, so big picture, I'm just really excited to watch this transition. Um, but I'm also really excited by films and by television that just, just do away with music entirely. Um, like uh, there was a TV series around for several seasons called Southland. It was a cop show set in LA. It had a very compelling theme song after which there was no music from beginning to end, except the music that happened to occur in the film. Like if someone rode by on a bicycle and was listened to a, a Walkman. And as a result, the sound design of the environment, whether it's a bank that someone's holding up or a police station, that was the only sound that was allowed to carry meaning. And of course, it wasn't a documentary film. They added sound to it to emphasize those elements. It was a highly artificial, realistic environment. But the absence of music was mind-blowing to me. Just really tremendous. Hmm. It's interesting thinking about it as the laugh track like you said, because it's kind of telling us how we should feel about a certain scene. Mm -hmm. Do you think we're just, as audiences, becoming more mature? I think, you know, we frequently like to pat ourselves on the back and say we're more sophisticated than our predecessors. But then, you know, you go back and you realize that, like, everything you think someone thought before you. I've done a lot of work um, in comics as well. And, you know, there's an extent to which comics have gotten incredibly sophisticated over the years. But at the same time, you go back and you look at early work by George Harriman or by um, uh, Little Nemo in Slumberland is another one, Windsor McKay. And, and that work would be right now seen as just as groundbreaking as it was at the time. So, so I do push back just a little bit at the idea we're getting more sophisticated, but, but you can argue that that sophistication does become more widespread. But anyhow, I think that um, you know, when a movie has an orchestral score, because every other movie had an orchestral score and that's how it's done, that's not going to yield great work. But when someone has an orchestral score, because everyone else has been hiring Cliff Martinez, and suddenly they say, you know, this film deserves an orchestral score, we intended it to be this way, then suddenly it's really quite stunning and strong. Mm -hmm. Well, Mark, it's been great talking to you. Oh, Charlie, I really appreciate it. I hope that what I said was fairly coherent. I I pulled an all-nighter Sunday night for the first time in many years, and my my sleep schedule and body have been recovering from it ever since. But... um, I'm really excited that composers are the audience for this because I think that um, just the idea that any of them might be intrigued by it and decide to to sign up and, you know, participate in a project or two, that would be tremendous. Maybe you could explain how that works if someone wants to get involved in Disquiet Hunto. Sure. It is open open membership. There's no application or anything. You uh, you go to soundcloud.com slash groups slash disquiet hyphen J-U-N-T-O. You just sign up and then every Thursday... In the late afternoon or early evening California time, a project is um, proposed, and the pieces are due by the following Monday, a little over four days later at 11.59 p.m., wherever you happen to be. 
That does it for my talk with Mark Wiedenbaum. Once again, if you've heard any tracks you like, make sure to go to ComposerQuest.com and I'll have links to all the music you heard in this episode. So thanks again to all of you artists who contributed your music. The Blind Sailing documentary Mark mentioned is called Sense the Wind, sensethewind.com. For those of you who are longtime ComposerQuest listeners, you'll recognize the artist of this track, Kevin T. Springer. He's the one who introduced me to Mark Wiedenbaum and Disquiet Hinto in the first place. So thanks, Kevin. Now I think it's time for... Since we're on the subject of ambient outer space-inspired music, I thought I would share with you a soundtrack I made for a super slow-mo video of the Apollo 12 launch. Some of the elements I used in this were an electric guitar shifted up an octave, a cheesy keyboard sound shifted down an octave, wind sounds, a super low, almost inaudible rumbling from the original video, and a distorted track that I gave a stereo feel by duplicating it, panning the tracks left and right, and then delaying one of them by a few milliseconds. The one thing I thought about after listening back to this track is how much ambient music can make use of suspensions and anticipations. In a music theory context, that means there's a note that isn't really supposed to be there. It's either hanging on from the chord before it, a suspension, or it's sneaking in early from the chord that's going to follow, an anticipation. It's a really easy way to create tension in your music, and it works especially well in ambient music because people are expecting long, drawn-out tones. Another reason I think these suspensions and anticipations work in my track is that I have a few sliding tones, which kind of sets up the listener's ear to hear weird tensions and weird harmonies. So I'll leave you now with my Apollo 12 launch soundtrack. <laughs>